One of my uh, favorite shows a few years ago, I'm not even sure if it's still airing or if there's just reruns or whatever, uh, but does anybody, anybody remember the show Undercover Boss? From the giggles, I, I can imagine you do. Um, first off, I think it probably ended, maybe I'm wrong, come and correct me afterwards. I'm sure somebody would be like, no, I watch it every week. I TiVo it. Um, but at this point, I would imagine the show would have to end because it's become so popular that like, if someone shows up to your company that looks like they have a fake beard and there's a camera crew there, like, enough people have probably seen the show and the premise, right? The, the premise of how they're there, where it's a competition to, to, to talk about who's going to get this job as a donut salesman. When have you ever, like, really? Right? But whatever the premise, the show is fascinating because I love, if you haven't seen it, they have the CEOs of major company. I remember the very, one of the first episodes was the guy that runs waste management, you know? And they go undercover, they get a fake disguise, and you know, they get all from like beards to fake hair to glasses if they don't have glasses. I mean, they do a pretty good job. And then they go undercover as like entry-level employees in various departments of their company all over the country to see how things go when the boss isn't watching, right? Like, is what the CEO is telling them should happen actually happening on the ground? And it's great because at the end, there's always at least one guy or girl in the show who's like a terrible employee, they're rude to the customers, and at the end there's like the, aha, you know, moment of reckoning where they find out that it's been the boss watching them the whole time, and you know, they're probably fired, or sometimes they get a second chance. But then there's always the person who does a really great job. You know, and somehow they're, I don't know why this is sensationalizing television, but they're always down on their luck, right? It's always the ones who are down on their luck who somehow do a great job at work, and so the CEO then rewards them with a promotion and like a house or a vacation for their family or some kind of crazy thing. But the beauty of the show is that you watch the whole time, the perception is not the reality, right? You're watching someone interact with another not knowing who they truly are, but you, of course, as the viewer, know that's the boss. And so you cringe when you watch them be rude to the boss. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, if only you knew. Right? Like, I, I don't know why, I got sucked in. I'm like, I like, felt so bad for those people. Or I'd be like, he's the same. Like, tell them. Someone let him know. Sometimes they figure it out, you know, and they're like super fake nice, like almost to the point. You can tell that like, all right, I got to review myself, they know. But the perception versus reality is huge in that show, and there's many like it. Today's passage, this, this idea of Palm Sunday, this day and event where Jesus came, is all about perception versus reality. Everything that happens, every single thing that happens, other than what Jesus himself does, every reaction from the leaders, from the people, from the disciples, is, is somehow shrouded in this wrong perception of who Jesus is. Everything comes down to that. And so this morning, as we look at Palm Sunday, we, we want to look at this idea of perception. We want to see why is Jesus perceived the way he is? What is it that the people actually want from Jesus? Right? And how can we go, and this is the big one to me, how can we go in one week from, from a triumphal entry where the Lord walks into Jerusalem or rides on a donkey into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches in celebration. The Messiah has come. He's here. It is the most jubilant affair. You have never been to a wedding that has partied as much as this day. How can we go from that in one week to crucify him? It's baffling. I haven't seen a politician go from being loved to hated that quickly. 
But somehow Jesus manages to have the entirety of, of the people rally for but then against him in a matter of one week. Did he screw up? That's what we're looking at finding out today. And we're going to look at John 12. But John is a little different. Um, most Gospels record a little more detailed of a triumphal entry than John does. And it's because, as we've now established, John is a little bit of the unique uncle. Right? He writes, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke write kind of one way. And John is just always kind of the, the odd duck out. And so John is far less interested in the actual entry, right? And far more interested in the dialogue that comes as a result or right after. The pomp and circumstance is great, and we're going to talk about what the things mean and all that, but what really what John is after is, after Jesus gets in and starts actually talking to the people, what's he saying, and what are they saying, and what does that mean for us? And so that's where we're going to spend the very brunt of our time. And spoiler alert, we're going to show you the very moment, John's really good at this, the very verse where people go from Hosanna to crucify him. They don't shout it yet, but there's a hinge point where it happens, we think. And we're going to look at that today. John gives us a beautiful insight into that. And so this morning, I would ask us to stand. It is a long passage. I'm going to read it for us. But let's stand in, in, in respect and honor of, of God's holy word this morning and get through this pretty lengthy text. Just, just hear the word of God. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They loved murdering people. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when, the, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So a lot of the people are there because they'd heard Lazarus was raised, and they're curious. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are going, gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're starting to realize that the people are moving to Jesus' favor. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda or Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, 
It had thundered. Others said, an angel had spoken to them. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people, all people, to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. One of the things to notice in, in Palm Sunday services, I don't know how, how many times you've experienced Palm Sunday or you know, the, the liturgy of Palm Sunday or how the, the service flows, but you'll notice that we, we start with music that is up here on the tempo and joy jubilance level, and we kind of get progressively down, and that's because it matches the mood of Palm Sunday. We think that Palm Sunday is about coming in and waving the branches, but, but one of the things we need to understand about the day is that it, it, is, it is the progression point from, from joy to trouble, right? And so a, a good laid out liturgical idea of Palm Sunday will start with jubilance and end, you should feel just a little eh when you walk out today, right? Because it moves us to that, uh, and it's designed to move us to that, so that by the time we get to Monday Thursday, we go into the fullness of, of, of sadness before we come to experience the joy of resurrection. And so that's the progression of this passage. It's not about jubilance, it starts there, but it doesn't end there, right? And so, as we mentioned, the people had this high, specific expectation of Jesus, right? And so let's look at what that expectation is, and then let's see what Jesus does with it. And I mean, we might be able to understand how we get to crucify him. Okay, the Jews at this time, they were suffering a tremendous amount of oppression under the Roman rule, Right? Not, not as much as in some other empires, like the exiles might have been a little bit worse. There's times where Israel suffered more, right, at the hands of various, you know, perhaps the judges' cycles that we just went through. But they're suffering under Roman rule, and they've suffered under Roman rule for a really long time. Long enough to forget the remainder of those oppressions. Right now, Rome to them is all that matters, right? And Rome was a smart empire, Rome didn't seek to rule the people in every aspect of their lives, right? Rome would come in and conquer a territory and then would say, you could live as you please, but you have to, you know, pay homage to Caesar and you need to pay taxes. And as we remember with passages like the tax collector, when Levi, you know, when Jesus comes to Levi, those taxes were oppressive. Sometimes they were like 80%. It was a heavy rule, and so, yeah, the Jews were told by Rome, you can live as you please to some degree, but they were thoroughly oppressed. They were prevented from any kind of economic thriving. They were held back under the thumb of Roman oppression so long that they wanted out more than anything. And so what started to happen is the scriptures, the Old Testament that we see today, and all of the prophecies of the Messiah, they started to twist them to, to be about this Roman oppression, right? When, you, when you're told by the Lord that someday the Messiah will come and rescue you, and the person you most need to be rescued from for, for decades and decades and decades are, are the Romans, then you start to think, well, the Messiah's coming to deal with the Romans. And so that was the assumption. They thought that the Messiah would come and deal with the Romans. And so this messianic expectation was just massively placed. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, there's the jubilance because they say, finally, 
the Messiah has come. He's here. And so they shout, Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save. So he's riding in and they're waving their palms and they're saying, save us. You're here. Thank you, finally. Because what they're expecting is going to happen is this. Jesus is going to come in and he's going to call them to arms. He's going to say, I'm here. Pick up whatever you got and we're going to go take the Romans out and I'm going to lead the charge. The palm branch itself is a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It was on the coin of the revolt during 2 Maccabees. It was the symbol of, what would, of the Messiah coming, and they wave, and they say, this is, you're going to free us again. You're going to be it. You're the one who's going to take care of the Romans. Oh, man, if you're Roman in our town, you better watch out, because the Messiah is here, and a reckoning is happening. We're just waiting for him to get into the city and to call us to arms. We're ready. We'll grab our weapons, and we'll be with you. And you're going to deal with them once and for all. Yeah. That's the expectation. All points from the Jewish people point to a political savior, an earthly king who would overthrow the current rule so that the Jews might actually finally be able to live exactly as they intended and want to and thought that life should go under freedom in the most narrow definition and sense. And so Jesus comes in, and he comes in in a little different fashion, right? He rides a donkey, and, and, and the donkey accomplishes really two things. Uh, and they're kind of conflicting imagery. On the one hand, the donkey fulfills the prophecy, right? It's, it's Zechariah 9.9. It was quoted in the passage that we read this morning, right? When they say, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the communication when Jesus gets on that donkey and rides in is very clearly, I am the Messiah you've waited for. It's a very big departure from the way that Jesus kind of operated up to this moment. Anytime they started to talk about him being the Messiah, what do we hear? He charged them strictly not to tell anybody. He said, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Now he comes in on a donkey to say, hey, the Messiah is here. Remember how I said, keep it quiet, guys? No more quiet. I'm here. The donkey says, I'm it. Go read Zechariah. When the guy comes riding in on the donkey, that's the Messiah. Get ready. Pull out the palm branches. Right? I am here. But on the same vein, the donkey is an animal of peace. We don't have to understand Jewish culture to get that, right? Anytime you watch a war movie that's pre-modern warfare, what is, what's the general come riding in on? The white horse or the black stallion, right? Those are, those are animals of war, but a donkey? Can you imagine you're waiting for the greatest political leader to overthrow the Roman Empire, and he comes riding in on a donkey? I'm not trying to be funny, but you know, that is a humorous image. There's an oxymoron kind of there. It's like, what? What? but it's an animal of peace. I think the prophecy in Zechariah themselves probably would have confused the Jewish people. Why would the king who's come to conquer come riding in on a lowly donkey? A young donkey at that, not even a fully grown donkey. I don't know what Jesus weighed, but, right? It's just, it seems like an almost kind of comical image in a way. But here he comes, and he's coming in to demonstrate something. Yes, the Messiah is here, but it's not the Messiah that you expected there to be. 
This is his public entrance, and the people shout Hosanna, and they have their, their palms, and they're waving them, and they're excited, and he comes into the city, and they're just chomping at the bits, and they're so ready, and they're so ready and so riled up that the religious leaders really start to lose it. They're like, guys, they're following him. Like, the people are, are, are behind him. Like, what are we going to do? We got to take him out. Like, why are the people all of a sudden behind him? Well, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and so Lazarus is like stirring the people on to come follow Jesus. All right, we should probably take him out too then. Right? And so they start plotting how they're going to kill not just Jesus, but Lazarus too, because they're losing the popular vote. And then Jesus does the thing that I'm pretty sure excited the Pharisees beyond belief. He puts his own foot in his mouth. We think he doesn't because it's Jesus, but we think. John spends time on this conversation, right? He comes into the city. He's there. He starts to interact with the people. We're told that there's some Greeks there, right? So we get this idea that even before Jesus died and rose and ascended, you know, we think Acts is when the gospel went to the Gentiles, but there were already Gentiles there. There were non-Jews that were part of this crowd supporting Jesus, and they want to see him. They want an audience with Jesus. They want to ask him questions. They want to meet with him. And so John records these interactions that he has with the various people. We imagine anytime Jesus speaks, there's a crowd. So he's not just talking to one or two, but he's talking to a whole bunch, right? And he starts to talk. And when Jesus starts to talk, things seemingly go really bad. And for John, the hinged three verses, the key is John 12, 23, 24, and 25. And it's this. It's the first time Jesus opens his mouth. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the people are like, yes, glorified. Son of man, I'm with you. They're, they're pitchforks, they're ready to go, whatever weapons they mustered, right? This is like the William Wallace battle cry. The time has come. Amen. And then he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, yep, we're with you, Jesus. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, we love our life, loses it. Wait, what? And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We're here. We're ready. We've come. We've got the pitchforks. Call us to battle. The Son of Man is here. Like that seed, I've come to die. Because that's how fruit will be born. You know how like you take a seed and you put it in the ground and it, it dies, it disintegrates. But out of it comes much fruit. And if it doesn't die, it just sits here and, and doesn't do anything. It's just a seed. You keep, it, you keep it in your hand. You don't put it in the right ground or soil where it belongs. Nothing's going to happen. And so just like that seed, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. But I've, I've come to accomplish what I've come to accomplish by dying. And by the way, that's kind of the, the guiding principle that I want you guys all to adopt too. Because whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life in this world or hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. And you picture the people with their pitchforks going, okay, um, well, that's different. I don't, I don't think that's what we were expecting at all. What do you mean you're going to die? No leader who has come to conquer an empire put the Romans in their place is going to do it by voluntarily just laying down their life. What is he going to do? Is he going to walk up to the, to, the people, to the people that are in charge in Rome and just lay down and surrender himself? Like, what? 
And so this is, this is the moment, right? They don't turn on him right then, but, but they, that starts them thinking. There's like the jubilance that was just a second ago when he came into the city is, is not really there anymore, right? Kind of hardcore buzzkilled the moment for what they thought should be happening. And so there's, there's a different mood in the room now. You picture the religious leaders going, <laughs> I can't believe he said that. Right? So they start making their plans. And next week, we'll start to celebrate the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal. Right? And while that was happening, the plot to arrest him was already in place. They already had Judas under their thumb. He was, he was colluding with them and bringing, and he was getting his money and his payment. And they had all of it set up and ready to go. And that's why when they arrest him, when the leaders, the religious leaders, arrest him and put him before the people, that's why they end up shouting, crucify me. Because they're saying, ah, this guy had every sign of being the Messiah that we're waiting for, but guys, I don't think this is it. That can't be. He's, he's got to be a blasphemer. Because the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to do it this way. He's not going to die. What is, what is that even? Right? Why would he do that? And he tells them the hour has come. Right? And the cries of jubilance turn to a weird confusion and a sense of mourning. And it leads to his arrest, his trial, and his murder. There's a mistake in the understanding of how Jesus came to accomplish what Jesus set out to accomplish. There's a confusion they thought that he would come and be this grand political savior and leader, this earthly king who would come to rule and to reign. And Jesus is after something radically different. And so our takeaway requires a couple things, but among them, it requires some political meddling. Don't talk about politics, Pastor. But here's the problem. This passage, this is a political passage. And so we don't talk about politics because it's cool to do or somehow is going to create a stir or a buzz. We talk about politics because Scripture in this instance talks about politics. And what it talks about is not a specific arena of politics, right? This is not dealing with Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or whatever it is that you like to identify yourself as politically. This isn't against any individual group. This is against the idea of earthly politics in general. The takeaway from this passage is that we today function really not much different from the people of this time. Because we say that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. But most of us act as if a lot of the earthly powers and principalities are the true Savior of our worlds. If I went on your Facebook wall today, would I think that your faith and reliance and hope is in Jesus or in next November's election results? Now I'm going to meddling. I'm not sorry. Right? That's not the only thing this passage is about, but it certainly teaches us a lesson about where our faith and our reliance is. Because the rhetoric around those types of things today is so ugly and the reason things get ugly and heated, the reason we have to say a comment when someone 
right? We're, we're a staunch Republican, and they're just spouting off Biden stuff. I have to make that comment. I can't be quiet. Why? Why are we so invested, right? They're just, they're excited about this justice election, and I, and I have to say something, right? Their crazy right-winger went off again, and I, I'm going to be the moderate voice in the comment section, because, you know, that's totally where we convince people of what's true or good. That's where people get converted. Did you know that? It's not in churches. It's in the comment sections of politic posts on Facebook. <laughs> so, so go home, get on there, and let those fingers fly. No, right? Why do we do that? Because we, we have to, because our, our, our allegiance really is in there, right? There's a part of our heart that belongs there. And that's the, that's the thing to pray about and think about today. If our reliance was in the, the Savior that has come not just to deal with one empire or one bad political influence, but to deal with the sin that undergirds all of it once and for all, if that's where our hope is, lies, then we don't rise and fall based off of single political outcomes, single elections, single bills, single laws. Now, should we be in the political sphere? Yes. But here's the difference. When there's disagreement... We can be loving and civil because we know that ultimately it doesn't matter. It's important. We need to deal with it. Yes, we need to have competing political ideologies, and we should think about, is this the best way or is this the best way? Is, is it okay to, is there more government, less government? Whatever those debates are, they're good debates, and we should have them, but we should have them with the understanding that ultimately they don't matter. Not in the very end. Because regardless of whether you are a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, a right-wing, a left-wing, a centrist, a moderate, whatever it is that you, right, all of it, regardless of what you identify yourself as, the one thing I will identify you as, that Jesus identify you as, is a sinner in the sight of God, and it doesn't matter what your ideology is or how right it is when you stand in heaven, he's not going to say, oh, there's the fast lane for the Republican Party. No. That's not how it's going to work. The only thing that matters will be that you are a sinner deserving of death and you have aligned yourself with Christ who has paid your price. Everything else is toppings. Right? Man, I get so annoyed when there's hostile debates in public spheres about political stuff and it's Christians. I just get angry, it really grinds my gears. And it's not because I have a particular ideology. I hate when the people who agree with everything I agree with politically go on Facebook and put stuff up that's demeaning and belittling and belligerent. I know people, I have friends in my life who I am fully aligned with politically, who I agree with, like we're the same. And then they spew their stuff online, and I, I, just, I just want to deck them. I'm like, everything about you publicly says that your faith and reliance are here, that you have to argue about it, because if you don't, like, this is life or death. And it's not. That is life or death. It's the only thing that's life or death. Everything else is toppings, right? And so when Jesus came and didn't line himself up with their idea, what if Jesus comes and he's a libertarian? What are you going to do? Are you going to shout crucify him? We've already done that. He's going to come as a mighty warrior. You're not going to have that option. 
Like, what if that, what if that happens? I'm not saying he is. Please don't. All right, I'm leaving this church because Vince said Jesus is. No. Please don't hear me say that. Like, what if, he, what if Jesus comes back and, and somehow he doesn't fit your, your beautifully concocted political ideology on his return? Are you going to reject him? Really? Man, I'd love to see that. No. He's going to come back and he's going to deal with the root of it all once and for all so that we don't even have to have conversations about politics anymore. I honestly think, to me, that's one of the most exciting things on the other side of heaven. There will never be a political conversation again. Amen? Amen. Next week when we get to Easter and celebrate, we're going to celebrate that our sins are forgiven and that we don't have to talk politics anymore. Right? Amen. The Lord came to deal with sin in the way that he wanted to come to deal with sin. It's not about Rome. It's not about Assyria. It's not about Babylon. It's not about Russia. It's not about the current oppressor of the day, whoever is after you or people in this world. He's coming to deal with the root of what causes all of those things to have happened and risen up in the first place. And he's come to deal with it once and for all. And to do it, he says, you must hate and lose your life. Now, does that mean you should go home and be depressed and hate your life? No. But you should hate it in relation to what the Lord calls you to. Every allegiance you have that sits somehow over Jesus needs to die. and needs to die now and needs to die hard and fast. If you're that person, if I'm making you feel guilty right now and you're thinking back, you're like, man, I hope he's not friends with me on Facebook because... Is he talking? Are we friends? Some of you probably have your phones out right now and you're like, please, is he thinking about me? Right? I hid that from him, right? I befriended my pastor, but then I did the whole like hide the post because there's things I don't want him to see, right? right? If that's you, if you're feeling it, I want, I want you to go home and I want you to read through some of those things. I want you to picture how a non-Christian would perceive those things. I'm not saying that we have to be politically silent. We don't. We should be in the spheres. We should be in the public. We should engage debates. When there are things that come up politically that don't align with what Scripture teaches, we should argue and push for those things, but we should push for them lovingly, and we should be very careful about how we push. There's times. Imagine if Jesus had come in when, when the adulterous woman was brought to him, and he had just thrown down said, you're wrong, and you're wrong, and everyone's wrong. And you just need to listen to me and get out of here, put the blocks down, and get in. Woman, you did commit adultery, so you will deal with you. No. Right? The Lord, the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of his example on this earth is that we get to watch him deal in wisdom. What does he do? He draws in the sand until people slowly come to their senses. We are called to be influential in this world, but we're called to do it in a way that is winsome. And so have your political conversations, but be loving. When you come against a side that you disagree with, ask questions. For the love of God, get off of Facebook with it. If you have a person, I'm going to challenge you, this is the thing for Holy Week. And I know this is like a a, a small thing and I'm meddling, but, but this is one of the ways that Christians could really change the way they influence the world. I want you to think of that one friend in the social media world that you just mm, with. And I want you to have coffee with them this week. I'm not kidding. Go on Messenger. I know you know how. Right? Some of you can't send an email, but you know how to delete comments on Facebook and be on Messenger. Great. Go on there, invite them for coffee, and say, you know, we butt heads, and I just, 
man, I'm really tired of, of, of the viciousness. Would you, would you just get coffee and can we just like talk about stuff with, can I, can I listen to you and maybe hear why you think the way you do and, and, and engage and maybe not do it in, in a place that's not designed to have anybody really win but just designed to descend into ugliness? I'll buy you the coffee or lunch. That's my challenge to you. Do it. You know, you know that friend. Maybe you're not a commenter, but you see them in your feed, right? And you constantly disagree and you want to be the commenter, but you're smart enough not to. Right? Whatever it is, go find that friend if they're local and ask them out to have a cup of coffee. And just chat and listen and ask them why they think how they do. I don't agree with your ideology. Well, here's, I have, I have some family history that caused me. And just, just look for some understanding. And maybe present your view in a way that is loving and say, here's why I think how I think. And we might never agree, but man, I'm glad we got together and talked. If nothing else, they're going to walk away disagreeing with you like they did when they came. But they're going to think, wow, that was, that was a good, loving thing. That was way better than the last week when they blasted me in the comment section. I wonder what compelled them to do that. And maybe they'll ask you. And maybe you can tell them. Well, here's how the Lord deals with people he disagreed with. You know, I don't, I don't think it's meant to be ugly. Our expectation of how we are to live and how Jesus operates is shaped and should be shaped by nothing else than what Scripture teaches. The Lord came to be the one who takes on the sin of the world. He looked at Rome and he said, they are a symptom of the disease. I've come to heal the disease. And for that, they crucified they turned on him. And they let him be arrested, and they shouted for joy when he was beaten and crucified. And we'll get to that midweek this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you did not set out to live this life and to commit your ministry the way we would have you do it. But in your infinite wisdom, Lord, you sought a way that was better, that was greater, that shattered every expectation and perception and hope that we could possibly have. Lord, we think about the earthly struggles that we go through, the little, the little nicks in our lives that wreak havoc on us, that cause us pain, and we want you to deal with those. And Lord, we don't even see the big picture, but you do. We serve a God who sees so far beyond our own pain and suffering and our own strife and our own challenges and issues and sees the, the, the giant picture. As we said before, you see the whole chessboard. We see but one piece. And so, Lord, we pray that our allegiance and our hope and our trust may be in you and only in you. That over the next week as we come to talk about your death, and then eventually celebrate your resurrected life. That we might understand that we follow in that pattern. That just like you, that we also, in order to live, have to die to ourselves. We pray that we might be ready for that. We pray that we might align ourselves with your way of doing things and not our own desires and thinking. That even as we go out of this place, more and more we would submit facets of our life to you. Because that's where true freedom is found. Thank you that you came that day into a Jerusalem that you know would not accept and embrace you. Thank you that you took that walk 
And you got on that donkey and you rode into the fanfare you knew would be short-lived. And you knew what you would experience. But in faith to the Father, you stepped in and did it anyway so that we might have eternal life. Be with us this week as we go out. Help us in our hearts prepare for the week ahead as we follow your pattern and your trajectory of Holy Week. And bring us all back next week, Thursday and then Sunday, to celebrate in jubilance that you've come, that you've died, and that you've risen. We love you, and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.